Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. As part of our series dedicated to dissecting the faults and fissures within our justice system, within which our structural inequalities are superimposed and entrenched, we're focusing this episode closer to home in Northern California and looking at the main causes of wrongful convictions. Many of the issues we'll be discussing are prevalent across the country, including the reliance on paid informants. The University of Santa Clara's Innocence Project was founded in 2001 and accepts innocence claims throughout Northern California. It is part of the Innocence Network, a loosely affiliated network of organizations that are dedicated to the exoneration of innocent people and policy reform that would prevent wrongful convictions in the future. The network has recently quadrupled in size and is present throughout the world, including in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the UK, Ireland, France, Italy, the Netherlands, Taiwan, and South Africa. I recently talked to Linda Starr, the co-founder and legal director of the Northern California Innocence Project, and Todd Fries, its operations director, about the causes of wrongful convictions in California and their case policy and transformative justice work. Since its founding, the Northern California Innocence Project has reversed the conviction of 18 people who, before their freedom, collectively lost 230 years of their lives. Welcome to Gravity, Linda and Todd. Thank you. Thanks for having us. My pleasure. So let's start with the cases you've worked on and are currently working on and what miscarriages of justice they involve. They run the gamut. Um, we have had 18 exonerations, and each of them represents a combination of errors that occurred in the system uh, and in the prosecution, and it has ranged from ineffective assistance of counsel and prosecutorial misconduct. Um, we have had use of uh, false forensic testimony. We have had bad eyewitness identifications, um, and we have had false medical testimony used. So our cases represent pretty much every possible error that can occur in a criminal prosecution. And I think that's kind of typical of wrongful convictions. They are a combination of, um, of errors. Okay, so let's talk a little bit. You mentioned false eyewitness testimony. Now, there's a multitude of things that can go wrong with eyewitness testimony. Studies have shown that we tend to reconstruct subconsciously and fill in pieces in our memories, that there are suggestive police lineups. And this might not be remedied by cross. Uh, You've already said that a lot of your clients have had problems with ineffective assistance of counsel. Now, a good cross-examination of testimony obviously requires effective assistance of counsel. Now, what are the main reasons that eyewitness testimony could be unreliable and what are ways that we could ameliorate or eradicate these problems, say, by double-blind administration, by police of suspects? Um, Well, I think you hit on it when you first started discussing this topic in that we have been operating our criminal justice system under a misconception about how human memory works and how human beings make identifications. And as social science has taught us more about how humans make those identifications, we are having to figure out how to adjust the system and the identification procedures that have been used for decades so that they do not rely on uh, false assumptions about how humans make identifications. Um, And you also touched on what I think is perhaps the most important modification that we could do, and that is that anybody who is conducting an identification procedure should not know who the suspect is. It should be a blind administration. 
Anybody who does any kind of science knows the importance of blind administration. No scientific test is ever valid if it's not done and administered blindly. And that's why the person who administers a placebo doesn't know whether or not they're giving the placebo or the actual drug because the, they, they can, whether intentionally or unintentionally, influence that identification procedure. And so that is something that um, law enforcement needs to uh, embrace and uh, adjust their procedures so that it is always administered blindly so that we get the best possible identification. Um, it's also true that people identify more accurately if the pictures are submitted to them sequentially as opposed to simultaneously so that they don't just compare the pictures and identify the person who looks the most like the person, but rather they compare one at a time to try to identify the actual person. Um, and we should avoid one-on-one -on -one show ups. They're just too prejudicial, just showing people that uh, one person uh, is is too it's too easy to influence them to identify that person. So they should be avoided when possible. And is there a move to do this in California? Uh, yes, there has been a move uh, agency by agency to do it. There ha there was in the past um, legislation proposed and passed through both houses of uh, the legislature to. Uh, require that a study be done about the adoption of best practices in California. It was vetoed by the then governors, Davis and Schwarzenegger. It passed many times. Um, and it was decided then that what we all needed to do, all of us who are interested, and this includes prosecutors and, and law enforcement, some members, is to do it on a more local basis, to do it agency by agency and try to help agencies understand the significance of adopting best practices and then implementing those best practices. So that's what has been done. Um, there's always an interest in figuring out how to do it on a more global, statewide way, which is tricky when you have so many individual jurisdictions um, operating independently to figure out how to impose that on a large, diverse state like California. So I also want to add that the Bay Area has had particular success in getting uh, jurisdictions to adopt best practices. So uh, counties like Alameda, San Francisco, San Mateo, Santa Clara have all voluntarily adopted. California isn't alone in, in not having best practices statewide. In fact, only 14 states do have uh, best practices statewide. So uh, it's something that we continue to work on, and we hope that someday we can get best practices uh, statewide California. Oh, I hope so. At least we're moving in the right direction, particularly in the Bay Area. That's uh, good to hear. Earlier, you mentioned prosecutorial as well as police misconduct uh, as one of the reasons that innocent people are convicted. Now, how many of your clients have been convicted due to false confessions and how prevalent is it now, in California, we'll have electronic taping of all murder suspects. Now, obviously, the gap there is that, uh, you know, you could go to jail for a very long time and be uh, wrongfully convicted of something that isn't of a crime that isn't murder, and uh, we won't have electronic taping of that. But do you think that electronic taping of itself is the answer to eliminate coerced confessions, or is there more that we need to do? Uh, there's definitely more we need to do. I mean, all that... that 
it's certainly a step forward because taping confessions will allow us to see how the confession evolves. Um, and then as anybody who's watched television recently and has seen Making a Murderer watching um, Brendan Dassey be questioned, it's so obvious how his confession ended up not being a voluntary confession. So it tells us a lot. I think it's also true that when people know that they're being recorded, they behave better. And so perhaps they'll use better practices in doing that. But it's certainly not going to solve the problem because the methods that police use in the United States almost universally is the Reed method. And it is uh, a method that is prone to uh, the result of uh, developing wrongful con confessions. So it is, um, I think it's going to require the, a change in how we go about interrogating suspects. Um, all, not all jurisdictions in the world use the Reed method. In fact, there's a method called the Peace method that I know is being used in New Zealand and has been uh, being considered for use in other areas, which is fo focused more on investigation to see what information you can obtain as opposed to already having in your head who the suspect is and trying to get them to confess to something. And there is a and, and sorry to interrupt you, but is that what the read method is? Is that so? Is the read method to try and obtain a confession once you believe that the okay? Yes, and it is. It's got a very specific formulaic uh, approach to try to convince somebody to uh, what they believe. I believe the interrogators think they have the actual suspect. They're not trying to frame somebody for the most part who who they believe to be innocent, but. Um, they believe that this, this is the suspect and they are doing everything they can to uh, get him to confess to that crime. With, yeah, with the read technique, it's not, even, it's not necessarily even interrog an interrogation. It's more of like a, a monologue. They're get, the, the interviewer is very friendly and very non-demeaning with the interviewee. Um, they essentially try to befriend them to, to gain their trust, and then they present different scenarios of, you know, asking, well, what, may, maybe this happened, and, and is this how you felt? Try, basically trying to um, give the interviewee justifications for their alleged behavior. So they also might use questions like, did you plan this out, or did it just, did it just happen for the moment, which, of course, doesn't really give a third option of, well, it didn't, didn't happen at all. So... Um, it's, it's a very dangerous technique, and in a worst-case scenario, it does lead to a uh, false confession. So in these leading questions and with the narrative that they pose, do they then provide suspects with information that they otherwise wouldn't have known that, they, that then transfers into their confession to make their confession look more reliable that only, say, the perpetrator of the crime would know the facts that were in the confession? Absolutely, they do that. And they can even provide suspects with information that's false. It's, it's been held to be proper for them to do that, even though it looks unseemly for sure. Um, they can say, we found your DNA at the scene, even though they didn't. And so that can encourage somebody to confess to something that they didn't do. Right. And they probably have the threat that if you don't confess, you're facing, you know, an extra 10 years in prison or or something like that. So we've talked about um, coercing confessions and police misconduct, but there's also prosecutorial misconduct, which you mentioned earlier. 
including uh, Brady issues. So that's where the prosecution has not provided exculpatory evidence to the defense as they're required to do. Now, how, um, how, how prevalent is prosecutorial misconduct? Um, it, it's very prevalent. It's very prevalent. In fact, um, about half of our cases involve some sort of official misconduct or prosecutorial misconduct, or half of our exoneration cases. Um, we find that often prosecutors will play very close to the line um, in, in disclosing evidence. So um, it, it's, it's a huge, huge problem. Well, I think that the other thing to think about is that um, not all prosecutors engage in misconduct. And many prosecutors object to the, the title misconduct. They want it to be called error or neglect because they didn't purposefully do something. And I think one of the main problems with Brady is that prosecutors don't, they are being forced to turn over information that they are not equipped to assess its, its importance to the defense. They aren't defense attorneys. They don't know the case from the defendant's standpoint. And so they, they, aren't in a, they aren't in a position to be able to assess whether something that they have should be turned over. And the, the solution for this, it's an easy solution. Open file discovery. Turn over everything and let the defense determine whether or not what's in the file is useful to them. Some jurisdictions have adopted that. Um, some are considering adopting that. And that will avoid any of these problems, and it doesn't put the fox in the position of guarding the hen house. Right, and it, it is a conundrum that prosecutors are placed in because they're in an adversarial system, but then they also have to provide exculpatory evidence to the defense. I'm going to push back on that a little bit. They are in an adversarial system, but they don't represent a client like a single person. They represent the state's interest in justice. And so if they keep clear their mission and their, their mandate, um, it should be easier to, for them to determine what it is that they are required to do. I think sometimes that is difficult in the heat of battle, which is why I think taking it out of their hands would relieve them of that. And I don't think of it as a punishment to them. I think of it as a, almost relieving them of the burden of trying to decide what a defense attorney needs or a defendant would require to mount the adequate defense. Just turn it all over and let the defense determine what's in there or not that's, that's required. True. And then you also don't have the problem of confirmation bias if the, if the prosecutor is sure that they're going after the guilty party, which I believe they would be if they're prosecuting them, right? Because they have that prosecutorial discretion not, not to um, continue the prosecution. So when they're looking at evidence, they're looking through this lens of confirmation bias. Whereas, as you mentioned before, the d defense attorney is much more equipped to look at the evidence and see what would help their client. It's very true. And we've had several cases, or at least a couple of cases where we get evidence after the fact, and we said, why didn't you turn this over before? And they were like, well, we didn't, we didn't think it mattered. They weren't tricking us. They really didn't think it mattered. And then when we explained to them why it mattered so much to us, we could see the light bulb like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. They're not being purposefully, I mean, let's face it, some of them are purposefully withholding information that might be useful. Those are the bad apples, but we're not talking about that overwhelmingly. What we're talking about is either prosecutors not recognizing it 
not digging hard enough to find it, um, not getting it turned over from the police to begin with, uh, and just not recognizing how important it could be to the defense. And like I said, since there's an easy solution, it'd be one thing if it was so complicated we couldn't figure out how to deal with it. But I, I honestly think open file discovery would, would, do, would do huge amounts to get around, uh, to get around this problem. Do you have anything to add, Todd? Yeah, I mean, the other thing I want to say is that um, the prosecutor's ethical duty goes beyond Brady. So they need to really, they, they should be turning over everything that's favorable in any way, regardless of whether it's, it's material or not. So um, just when a prosecutor does that assessment, quite often they're just looking, at, you know, is this piece of evidence material? What, would it have made a difference in the case? And really, the question should be, is it favorable at all? Does it have any sort of exculpatory value, any sort of impeachment value, regardless of whether or not it's material to the case? So um, I just implore prosecutors to make sure that they're, you know, they look at the favorability of it and not just the materiality, materiality of it when they, when they disclose evidence. You know, this is an area where judges could be a little more active as well. And they could hold the prosecutor's feet to the fire a little bit to make sure that that evidence had been turned over. Like, asking them on the record if they have reviewed their file and turned everything over uh, and eliciting from them that that um, representation will make sure that the prosecutor has remembered to do that, is aware of the significance of doing that and his, op his or her obligation to do that. Um, so judges could also be more active in this role. And what, what we've seen some defense attorneys actually do is to ask the judge to give an order that, that a prosecutor must comply with their ethical duties um, regarding, regarding disclosure of evidence. So, um, you know, that's something that judges can do on their own is sort of make that order from the get-go rather than even having the defense ask them to have to do it. Now, everything that we've been talking about, uh, prosecutorial misconduct, how to uh, overcome it, or error, sorry, not just misconduct or error, but you need, yeah, but you need a good defense counsel. And we have the Sixth Amendment protects our right to an appropriate defense, which has been interpreted to include the right of counsel. But do do people really get effective assistance of counsel? And how how difficult is it to prove that somebody had an ineffective assistance of counsel? Well, you know, certainly some of our clients received less than effective assistance of counsel, and there's a variety of reasons for that. Some people don't know what they're doing, and so they provide inadequate representation. Some are given inadequate resources to do what needs to be done in order to provide uh, adequate representation. Um, and so it's, it's, it is complicated. Um, it is very difficult. Let's face it. It is really difficult to get any case reversed for any reason. Um, it is a huge burden to go it's a, on a presumptively valid conviction to go forward into a court and convince a court that they need to reverse this conviction. So all of our claims are really difficult to prove, and ineffective assistance of counsel is one of them. One thing I can say about ineffective assistance of counsel is, in order to demonstrate it, what we almost always have to do is not just show that this person didn't do certain things that they should have done or did some things that they shouldn't have done, but that it would have mattered in the case. And in order to do that, we have to do all the things that the defense attorney didn't do 
and all the things that the defense attorney did do to demonstrate that, in fact, it would have made a difference in the trial. And so it's a very laborious effort. Not only is it difficult to convince the court that it all wasn't just a matter of strategy, but it is also a really difficult and laborious effort to, to provide that evidence and to do that, that work that should have been done at the front end of the trial. So ineffective assistance of counsel is a claim that we often make. I will not say that it happens more than prosecutorial misconduct. I will just say that we have better access to the information that will allow us to make that claim. In prosecutorial misconduct, we don't know what we don't have. We can go looking around, but unless we find it, we don't know what it is we don't have. For ineffective assistance of counsel, we have access to the defense file. We have access to the defendant. We have access to the witnesses that he believes or should have been called or consulted. So we have better access to the information that we might need. How does California preserve evidence in cold cases and How does it preserve evidence where there has been a conviction? And does the current process meet the needs of wrongfully convicted people to re-examine evidence in order to attempt to reverse their conviction? Because it seems what you you are trying to do as counsel to exonerate persons is you're also looking at the evidence. You have to look at the evidence that was there to make a point that uh, it either was not looked at properly or something wasn't investigated so in, in California, the policies regarding the destruction of evidence are completely inconsistent, and some jurisdictions are entirely non-existent. There are really no procedures for tracking the location of forensic evidence, and, and often communication amongst different offices is disjointed. Um, and it, it varies from office to office. So some agencies preserve physical evidence only in homicide cases. Others destroy the evidence after uh, the appellate process is complete, and then other agencies uh, often randomly lose or, or destroy evidence. But physical evidence can be spread amongst many different agencies. It can be found in, in law enforcement property rooms. It can be in uh, district attorney evidence units. It can be in courtroom or court exhibit rooms or forensic labs. There's really a lack of consistent state protocols for, for preserving and destroying evidence. And uh, often the decision of whether to preserve Physical evidence is based on budget issues, um, physical space, or or activity on a a particular case. Um, We do know that there have been 350 DNA exonerations, uh, which have only happened because the physical evidence in those cases was retained. So currently, we're sponsoring uh, a bill, AB 1128, which closes a loophole in California uh, which requires that exhibits and physical evidence be retained in homicide and sexual assault cases for the length of an inmate's sentence. But unfortunately, uh, that bill ran into some fiscal issues and it's now held in the suspense file. But we know that there that we need to we we know that evidence needs to be preserved. We know that protocols need to be put in place, and so that's something that we're that we're working towards. Linda, did you have anything to add? Well, what I would say is that it, it should not be the case that the evidence that we rely upon in order to obtain wrongful convictions is um, discovered by serendipity. There should be a method of accountability for the maintenance and um, preservation of evidence so that we know 
that it will be there where it is and who has it. And we shouldn't have to go scrambling to each jurisdiction, rummaging through lost and found boxes, um, traipsing through bags, uh, rows and rows of bags, paper bags of material. There needs to be some more methodical method of preserving evidence. And there just is not a statewide method. And as Todd said, every jurisdiction does it in their own way. And that, that just isn't a, an effective use of our, of our resources. Mm. There, aren't, there aren't even consistent computer programs. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's shocking how, how much it varies from, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So making everything consistent would be a good start. It also shouldn't be the case that when we're told that evidence doesn't exist because it's been destroyed, we don't believe it. Mm. And we don't believe it because later we find it. And so I, it shouldn't be the case. It should be that if, if, you know, they shouldn't be, it shouldn't be represented to us that something has been destroyed when it actually exists somewhere and we could use it. And that's what happens more times than I, than I, than I can believe, actually. I never, when somebody represents to me that it's been destroyed and a student comes back and says, oh, they said it's destroyed, I don't, I don't, I just think, what's our next step? And you usually find it? Well, sometimes we find it. I'd say about half the time we find it. And so, you know, half the time is a lot of time. <laughs> yeah. While your client continues to be in prison, wrongfully yeah, convicted. Exactly. Exactly. Well, it's not inconsequential. I mean, there was, uh, I believe, Uriah Courtney, uh, his exoneration was due to evidence that was that they were told that uh, the California Innocence Project out of San Diego was told was destroyed. And then, of course, it turns up and we're able to do DNA testing and, and he's exonerated. So... Um, yeah, it happens. Now, I'd like to discuss paid informants, and the reason I'd like to discuss paid informants is that it just seems so logically fallible that we would convict people primarily based on evidence where the person provided the evidence because they were expecting and extracting a benefit from it. It's actually one of my pet peeves, so I'm glad you asked it. Um, I can't believe that we rely on incentivized informants to convict somebody and put them away for life. It is, there is all kinds of evidence that we do not allow in a case because we find it to be unreliable. And I cannot imagine anything more unreliable than a person who barters and whose job it is to um, get some benefit for his or her own self in order to provide testimony that the prosecution needs. And so I, I actually think that we shouldn't rely on them at all. Um, I don't think our criminal justice system would crumble if we got rid of the use of paid informants. I think it would require more thorough and um, a deeper investigations by police, and I think they could do it. I think they're up to the task. I don't want them to take the lazy way out of using a, an informant. That's one of our policy initiatives right now is... Um, is uh, actually regulating the use of jailhouse informants. And we have, we're sponsoring a bill, um, AB 359, which would do just that. One of the things we need to do is track informants. We need to know uh, when they're testifying, why they're testifying, who they're testifying for. And right now there's no really no system statewide in place to, to track informants. To, so we don't really know. Someone could be testifying over and over and receiving a benefit. Um, we need to know when that's happening. 
Yeah. So another issue you'd mentioned earlier was wrongful forensic analysis or firearms analysis being an exact science, but it seems that it's highly subjective and reliant on a person's particular impression. You know, forensic science and its use in the courtroom is a big conundrum right now. Um, It turns out that not only the general public, but also many lawyers and judges have come to rely on the representation of people who claim to have expertise in something um, and that demonstrates some forensic significance. And greater scrutiny done by scientific methods has shown that those representations can't be relied upon for those conclusions. And so we have a whole you know, public and um, institutional acceptance of certain things as forensic science that aren't science at all. And so being more skeptical of that is hugely important for judges and lawyers. Um, educating ourselves as to what is science and what is not science and allowing scientists to help us do that, not antid- not just anecdotal information, not just historical information, but actual um, peer-reviewed science that allows us to know whether or not something can be used for what it's being said. And, and it's across many disciplines. And I guess that's, that's the really troubling part. So we have the current debacle where the FBI was Uh, misrepresenting the significance of microscopic hair comparison. We have the current debacle of um, police officers and firefighters representing certain fires as being uh, caused by an arson based on certain characteristics that are not conclusive for arson at all and do not leave one to conclude that can't you from which you cannot conclude something was an arson and there are many others as well and what's really troubling is that uh, President Obama had um, initiated a real study of all this and we were moving forward on trying to develop careful thoughtful procedures to evaluate what's legitimate science and what isn't to be used in the courtroom And it looks like uh, Attorney General Sessions is backtracking on that now. So um, it's something we're going to have to be very uh, vigilant about continuing to um, explore in the courtroom and force legitimate science to be used. The only thing I would want to add is just that anytime you have a subjective-based forensic science, there's going to be room for, for human error. So that's just sort of inherent in some of these types of sciences. Another another science that Linda mentioned was uh, was bite mark analysis, which has also been uh, sort of debunked. Um, so there are a lot of sciences out there. We just need to be careful if they're subjective based. There's just going to be room. There's always going to be room for that human error. So how did wrongfully convicted persons find out about the Northern California Innocence Project? How did they come to you, and how do you decide what cases to take? Well, we receive requests from a number of different sources. We get requests from the inmates themselves. We get them from family members. Sometimes we get cases referred to us from other attorneys. Um, But the overwhelming majority of of inmate requests come from the inmates themselves. They find out about us mostly through word of mouth. I I know years ago we might have sent questionnaires or different things to to the prisons, but for the most part, 
it, it's through word of mouth. Um, we require that all inmates, to, to get the process started, that all in, inmates need to write us a letter. Um, we don't take cases over the phone. We don't do it by email. We don't do it through social media. People are asking us all the time, hey, you know, help, help my family member. But we always require that the inmates write us a letter. We receive approximately 2,000 inmate letters every year. Um, and of those letters, about 600 to 700 of them are new requests for assistance, meaning uh, the inmate hasn't contacted us in the past. And it's a common misconception that we, that we take any case. We definitely don't take any case. We have a rigorous screening and investigation process. And actually very few of the requests that, that we receive actually make it through to, to litigation. So it's a really, it, it's a quite rigorous process. Um, when someone writes to us, the first thing we do is we log it in our case management system, and our case manager looks at it and does that initial triage to see if it meets our, our basic uh, case criteria, which, simply put, is, is the inmate needs to have been convicted in a northern California county, meaning um, north of San Luis Obispo County, Kern County, or San Bernardino County, and there needs to be some new evidence of innocence that exists that hasn't already been, been litigated. You can, our, our, our case criteria you can find on our website, there are more criteria than that, but those are the two basic criteria in a nutshell. But when an inmate writes to us, if, if it meets that basic criteria, we'll send them a, a questionnaire for them to fill out. It's a questionnaire that has basic information about their case, and we also ask for additional documents if they're able to, to provide that. If the case doesn't meet our, our, our criteria, we'll send a rejection letter right off the bat, and roughly about 60% of the requests that come in um, are, are rejected sort of right off the bat because they don't meet the criteria. Maybe they're, it's a civil case or it's a, it's a misdemeanor or, or, or something of that nature. So once we get a, a questionnaire back from an inmate, we do an intensive second screening uh, of, of the questionnaire. We might also seek out other documents. We might pull the opinion up to, to look at the facts to see if the facts and the opinion match what the person is saying in the questionnaire. We'll also reach out to, to past attorneys, to prior witnesses, uh, to lab personnel. So we do this, this sort of second screening to gather more information about the case. And once we've gathered enough information about that case, we'll present the case to the case screening committee, which is really our, our legal team. And uh, the case screening committee will decide, is there enough to this case that we actually want to assign it to an attorney for a full investigation? If so, it'll get assigned to an attorney. If not, we can reject a case at any time, any, at any time in the process. Um, if a case does get assigned to an attorney for a full investigation, that attorney will work with law students because we, do, we are a clinic here, so we do have law students uh, in our office. They'll put together an investigation plan to try and uncover um, evidence of innocence that can then be used for, for litigation. And litigation is typically started with, uh, it begins with a file a petition for it of habeas corpus, usually based on, on some sort of, of new evidence. Um, but we, let, we mentioned DNA before. We do a lot more than just um, DNA cases. Um, we, do, we, we do fire science, we do shaken baby syndrome, we do child sexual abuse accommodation syndrome, we do hair and fingerprint analysis. The cases that we do sort of run the gamut. Um, some innocence projects focus only on DNA cases. We are definitely not one of those. Not definitely not one of those projects. You mentioned two syndromes. Could you just explain what those are? Um, 
Well, one of them is shaken baby syndrome, which is um, a belief, it was a hypothesis actually, that was suggested sometime many years ago as indicating that a baby might have been shaken and that that's what caused injuries. And it has turned from a hypothesis to a diagnosis. And there are many medical professionals and biomechanical engineers that have challenged convictions that are based solely on what has been considered um, representations of this syndrome. So that's one of the, the areas of sort of medical misdiagnosis or medical testimony that we are investigating and, when appropriate, challenging. Um, the other one is child abuse accommodation syndrome. We haven't challenged a case based solely on that, but that is often an aspect of a case that involves a child's sexual molest. And when we find evidence that, sh that indicates that the, either the crime didn't occur or that our client wasn't the uh, person who did it, we often find that that testimony was used inappropriately at the trial as well in order to demonstrate that something happened, which is not an appropriate use of that testimony, as opposed to just showing um, why somebody uh, explained, it explains why somebody who was a victim may have uh, reported it the way that they did. Mm. So those are the syndromes that uh, Todd made reference to. Right. So do you ever find uh, that you believe that a person is innocent after you've conducted the thorough investigation, but that your legal assessment of the case is that there is no new evidence or just that you cannot present it to a court and that you have to divert resources elsewhere? And is that one of the reasons that you get ongoing requests and maybe uh, you don't take someone initially, but new evidence comes in and you remember that person or you have them on file and then you take the case later. Yes, uh, actually a lot. I mean, that I think that might be one of the hardest things of the work that we do is having a client where we really think they're innocent, um, but we can't prove it. We don't have what we need in order to overcome the high burden that we have in court to get the conviction reversed. And that is frustrating. But you're also right that we can revisit a case. And it is, the, it is the case that sometimes evidence appears later. Witnesses come forward that we couldn't find. Uh, we had a case where we believed a witness to be dead, and it turned out he was incarcerated in another state. When we found him, we then had the evidence. So you are right. We, we can always go back and revisit a case that we closed. Um, or that we're no longer working on, if something new develops that allows us to reconsider whether we can go forward in a case or not. And it's also true that the law can change. Um, sometimes there's a procedural bar to us moving forward uh, that prevents us from getting back into court not having to do with the evidence. And sometimes that changes and we're able to move forward with, with that. So, for example... In California, in order to file a petition for a writ of habeas corpus challenging a conviction, you have always had to be in custody, which was defined by incarcerated, on probation, or on parole. And we had some clients that would write to us um, and that were no longer in custody, as that's defined. But they had to register as sex offenders and their lives were enormously negatively affected. It is now the case that California has changed that standing 
requirement, and we supported the legislation that did that, so that if you have evidence of innocence, you can go forward with a, a challenge to your conviction. So we're able to now go back because of that change in law and help some clients that we weren't able to help before, even though we had what we believe conclusive evidence of innocence. So what's the process of reversing a conviction? How long does it typically take if you are able to reverse the conviction? So, you know, the process, most of the process is, or not, that's wrong. Much of the process is in the investigation that leads us to develop the evidence that helps us demonstrate that the conviction is false. Um, our usual way of challenging a conviction in the state of California, since we represent people who are convicted only in the state of California, is to file what's called a petition for rid of habeas corpus in state court. Um, we typically start in the superior court because that's where we usually have to start. Um, we file a petition. If the court finds that we've made out a prima facie case, they issue what's called an order to show cause, which is ordering the state to respond as to why what we've requested shouldn't be granted. The state replies. Uh, we then respond to the state, and the court determines whether or not there are disputed facts that require an evidentiary hearing. If so, we have an evidentiary hearing, and then hopefully we win. <laughs> uh, if, if that's not the case, we then move on to the next level, which is the California Court of Appeal. Uh, and if we're not successful there, we'll go to the California Supreme Court. Uh, and then we will move into federal court with our constitutional claim. So we don't give up until we have nowhere else to go and we have to give up. Um, once we, and, or unless we discover evidence that makes us believe that the client isn't innocent. Um, hmm. And that's how we proceed. It takes years. It can take years and years. We litigated one case through the state court and then into federal court before we were successful after 11 years. Ouch. Uh, yeah, that's a long time. That's a very long time for a wrongfully convicted client to be uh, waiting for his justice, and that's after he's already served a great deal of his sentence. So it is an extraordinarily long process. The average exoneration takes more than 10 years, so it really it really does take quite a long time um, to get an exoneration. So during this long process, even when you've taken a case on behalf of a client, uh, they might be able to go before the parole board. So it seems that innocent people are in this particular conundrum because the parole board requires them to accept uh, responsibility for the crime as well as express remorse for it, and, of course, they haven't done it. The parole board not only looks at a prisoner's behaviour, they might have stellar behaviour in prison, they also look to see that the prisoner has accepted responsibility for the crime. Now, if an innocent person admits responsibility for a crime, that can, I suppose, be used as evidence against them, particularly in a case where they're trying to exonerate themselves. Have you ever known for clients to just capitulate to this requirement in order to be able to obtain parole? You know, it's interesting. I have been amazed at how many clients don't capitulate when confronted with that conundrum of um, admit your remorse for the crime so that you can be considered to be released and with no other option, I'm surprised that everybody doesn't capitulate and admit to some remorse for the crime so that they could actually be considered um, for parole. So 
yes, I know some do. I totally understand why they would. Um, and we would, in that situation, argue that that's why they did it and allow them to explain that. And hopefully a fact finder confronted with other evidence of innocence would understand that that's the case uh, and would not give that admission under those circumstances very much credibility. I mean, it's pretty much an extorted admission. Mm. If you're looking at life in in prison or admit remorse and you'll be considered to be released for, for release. And like I said, it's amazing to me how many of them, they, they said, I can't do it. I can't go in and admit it. I didn't do it. Yeah. And I'm always amazed by it. I don't know what I would do. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I don't know either. You never know until you're placed in such a stressful position. Right. So after all these years of being in prison and you're exonerated, finally, say you're exonerated. Now, California provides compensation to defendants, which we should do, and that's great. But what I'm flabbergasted about is that this isn't as of right, but there's there has to be a determination of their innocence. And what's even more perplexing, and correct me if I'm wrong, but falsely convicted person actually bears the burden of proof. Now, may you please explain a little bit more about this Kafkaesque requirement? Uh Sure, it is kind of Kafkaesque, and it, it actually feels um, even worse when uh, you you got your conviction reversed. Um, many of our clients, the basis for their reversal isn't a declaration of actual innocence. It is because other claims exist, like prosecutorial misconduct, like ineffective assistance of counsel, as we've been discussing, and those are easier burdens to meet than demonstrating actual innocence. A court will grant the reversal based on those other circumstances, those other claims. So, you know, let's say your conviction gets reversed on the basis of ineffective assistance of counsel because counsel failed to use the evidence of innocence and the conviction is reversed, then the state will oppose payment because the conviction wasn't reversed on the basis of actual innocence but on the basis of ineffective assistance of counsel and has gone so far as to call that a technicality. Um, so it is extremely frustrating. Um, it is something that we struggle with enormously and have for years to try to figure out how to fix it so that it doesn't work that way. And, and you're right, maybe shifting the burden is a, is a good way to do it. Uh, we've, we've thought about, wouldn't it be better if the burden was on the state to demonstrate why this person shouldn't get compensated? Or maybe it should be there's a presumption of compensation that needs to be overcome. Um, or maybe just compensate them all and let's get rid of all this uh, complicated process that gets in the way of just compensating people whose convictions were reversed in that way. And they were reversed because they were wrongful convictions. So. Correct, correct. I mean, I think that what, what the state probably is concerned about is that, well, they might have been wrongfully convicted, but they weren't innocent. And that, that might be what they claim, is that, well, we can't go forward and we, the conviction was reversed, but we aren't convinced that they're innocent. And um, maybe that's a big so what. Maybe we just pay them all. They were wrongfully convicted, nonetheless. That's true. That's true. Um, now, we've talked a lot about 
false confessions, uh, both uh, prosecutorial and police misconduct, uh, the problems with so-called forensic science. But there might be more here. There might be a structural inequality. Our society has structural inequality. We we have institutional racism. Have you seen that uh, a majority of your clients are impecunious, uh, non-white people? Do you see these prejudices and structural inequalities permeating and prevalent in wrongful convictions? I mean, I don't see how we couldn't. And I know that the National Registry of Exonerations did a study of um, how race affects wrongful convictions. And it is, of course, disproportionately people of color uh, and not of means that are wrongfully convicted. There's no way to think that it couldn't be. I mean, race and socioeconomic status have such a uh, disproportionate effect on one's contact in the criminal justice system that, of course, it is also going to affect those who are wrongfully convicted as well, for sure. If you're you're asking specifically about our clients, we definitely receive more requests for assistance from the Hispanic and African-American communities and populations than any other. Um, The demographics, though, of of our exonerees don't necessarily follow that trend. Just I can give you some numbers. Five of our exonerees are, are African-American, three are Hispanic, one is Native American, nine are Caucasian, 50% are Caucasian. And I think that the reason for the breakdown of our, the reason our, uh, the breakdown of our exonerees doesn't fit that trend is directly related to the population that, that we serve. We serve the northern 48 California counties, which doesn't include Los Angeles, which is by far the largest urban center in the state. Many of the counties that we serve are smaller rural and primarily Caucasian counties. But generally speaking, um, yes, I would agree that a much larger proportion of wrongful convictions occur among poor populations and, and, and non-whites. And that's... It could also be that when we represent a white inmate, it is easier for the system to think they may have been wrongfully convicted, another demonstration of racism. I don't mm-hmm. know that, but it can be the case. Yeah. I mean, there's not only, uh, you know, the institutional racism, but as you mentioned, uh, your first encounters with the justice system, the prosecution can build a character profile from that if uh, it were ever admitted into trial, if, if the defendant um, takes the stand, for instance. And, uh, and obviously, if you're impecunious, you're going to get a public defender, or maybe you would get a public defender that wouldn't be as good as the best criminal attorney or an amada of attorneys in the state. I'm going to disagree. I think sometimes the public defenders are the best criminal defense attorneys in the state. Um, They are often limited only by the resources that they're provided. So it is not the case that public defenders provide less quality representation than do paid lawyers. There are, of course, some people who have great resources and can hire whole teams of phenomenal lawyers, and that's uh, terrific. Um, But it is also the case that Many public defenders are not paid a lot and do it because they care very deeply about the work and are extraordinarily talented, uh, able attorneys and provide fabulous representation to their clients. So, yeah, I, I didn't mean to, to... to pick. You know, you just don't get to pick when you're poor, and that I guess that's part of the the problem. And resources for uh, public defenders are are a huge problem. They have a massive caseload, don't they? Yes, yes, they do. And, and resources is a huge problem for them. 
absolutely. Which may affect the difference. I did not mean to uh, say that they were uh, in any way less able than other attorneys. Now, I want to move forward to a different topic. You have commendable casework, but recently you've also started to uh, facilitate and organize restorative justice retreats, understanding that there is more to than simply reversing someone's conviction, but that uh, wrongfully convicted defendants require a healing and a transformation that just simply reversing their conviction doesn't um, doesn't provide. May you please tell me a little bit more about how these restorative justice retreats started, how they function, and how participants have responded towards sure. them? Sure. So in uh, December 2014, NCIT hosted the first ever restorative justice retreat for individuals harmed by wrongful conviction. It was a, a pilot program. Uh, it was a three-day retreat. It was held at Nature Bridge Retreat Center in the Marin Headlands, and it brought together exonerees and crime victims from cases and uh, crime victims from cases in which there was exoneration, not from the same cases. So, um, so it was two particular stakeholder groups, and for the first time, they got to discuss the harms that were caused to them by uh, by wrongful conviction. Um, they and they brainstormed policy solutions, and it was. Uh, there was tremendous healing. Um, they came out of that initial retreat saying they, they felt uh, a freedom like they'd never felt before. And so um, that first, that, that initial retreat was a collaborative vision and effort between NCIT, between Jennifer Thompson, who um, is, a, is a crime victim and author, uh, a criminal justice advocate. She's also the, the founder of Healing Justice, which is another organization that does restorative justice retreats. And also Sujatha Baliga, um, at that time, she was with the National Council on Crime and Delinquency. Now she's the, the founder of uh, Impact Justice, which is uh, a, another organization that does restorative justice work. So it was a, a collaborative effort between all of them, that, between NCIP and Jennifer Thompson and John Baliga for that first retreat. So following that first retreat, considering it was such a, a huge success, we decided we wanted to seek out funding for additional retreats. So we did find foundation funding to fund two more retreats in the summer of, of 2016. So we had those retreats in June and August, and they also were held uh, at Nature Bridge Retreat Center in the Marin Headlands. And we also included an, an additional stakeholder group at those retreats. We included family members of the Connery. Um, so the two retreats were designed, the, the 2016 retreats were designed to build upon one another. So the goal of the first retreat was to was to give an opportunity to heal and to build a community a community of support. And the goal of the second retreat was to continue the healing process, but to also give retreat participants um, storytelling uh, skills, advocacy skills, so to speak, so they could use their experience to advocate for change in the criminal justice system. We can't really talk about the specifics of what was discussed because everything. Uh, was confidential, but I can give you a sense of how the retreats function. Um, so at both retreats, we used what was called a restorative justice circle process. And basically how that works is uh, participants sit in a circle formation and they listen to one another, they share stories, and it really provides a safe space and an opportunity to get feelings off their chest and to sort of begin that, that healing process. Um, both retreats included typical elements of restorative justice circles, and I'll touch on what those are really 
one of the things is there were circle keepers. I, I served as, as one of the circle keepers for both retreats. And circle keepers are there to basically guide the conversation. They participate in the circle just as everyone else, but they're, they, they make sure that everyone abides by the guiding values which, you, which the, the attendees decide on at the beginning of the retreat. Um, we also used the talking piece. Um, anyone who was holding the, only the person who was holding the talking piece could talk. So it really gave every, everyone an opportunity to talk. And if you weren't holding the talking piece, it gave everyone an opportunity to listen, um, which I think is just as important as being able to talk. Um, we also, like I said, everything was confidential. We wanted people to feel like they could talk about things when they wanted to talk about things, and they, we didn't want them to uh, be afraid that what they said would, would get out to the general public. So we really made sure that what was said in the circle stayed in the circle. But the retreats were designed to begin with activities that, that help build um, trust and to create shared values and a sense of connection, something that, that would help create a safe space. For, so, for example, uh, one of the activities, we asked people to bring a special object with them and then to share that special object with the group and, and tell the group about the significance of it and what it means. We, another activity was we asked people to draw a safe space um, and to explain to the group why that's a safe space and what the significance of that safe space was. So the whole first day was really sort of building trust, doing these types of activities to get people to, to know one, one another on, on a deeper level. And by day two, everyone, you know, the emotions really started coming out. People felt safe. Uh, people felt like they were really able to open up. Um, so at, at both retreats, there were sort of basic questions that kind of guided the conversation. And, and those were, how are you harmed by wrongful conviction? What do you need as a result of that harm? And what, what are the sort of the points of commonality in, the experience, in your experience? So what we really wanted to do was, was build bridges, create connections between all the different stakeholder groups, from the crime victims to the exonerees to the family member of the exonerees. So while they all had their own unique experiences with wrongful conviction, we wanted everyone to realize that they're, they're tied together by this, this sort of common experience that, they, that their lives were, were somehow impacted by wrongful conviction. Um, so the August, I mentioned the August retreat was built upon the June retreat because we actually had a storyteller come in to help the different, uh, to help the, the attendees learn storytelling skills. Uh, what we find is that a lot of a lot of exonerees and others impacted by wrongful conviction want to go out and actually advocate, talk about their experiences to to help better the system. So in order to do that, we wanted to make sure that that folks had the the, the skills they needed to do that effectively. Um, beyond the the time that we spent in circle, there was a lot of time to just sort of have more calm, more more casual conversations. To, to take hikes to the beach. We're right there, right by the beach in Newman Headland. Uh, we took hikes up into the hills at night. We even had a campfire with more, um, which was which was fun and delicious. Um, but there was really a lot of a lot of bonding, a lot of a lot of good sort of time outside of the circle as well to, to get to know one another and have just a more casual um, experience. That's fantastic. Um, both, both yeah, it was. It really, it really was was amazing. People came out of these retreats just refreshed, renewed. Um, everyone has stayed in touch through email, through phone, and definitely through social media. They, 
So the, the response was, was overwhelming. People said, we definitely want to do this again. Um, and so, you know, it remains to be seen whether or not we can find funding to do it again. But uh, I know that at least the three retreats that, that we did were extremely successful. People really, really enjoyed them. So myself. So I want to move now to a completely different topic, something terrible, and that is the death penalty. It's just so embarrassing that it continues to be the law in most United States jurisdictions, and um, it's the law in California still. I was very much surprised and uh, saddened by the fact that California voters uh, last year had the chance to get rid of the death penalty, but instead they chose to expedite the process. They chose to retain it and expedite it. Although I think part of that problem might be that people didn't actually understand the wording of the proposition. It's proven to be an ineffective deterrent. It's economically inefficient and it's logically fallible. How can our law dictate the killing is wrong when it sentences people to death? And obviously when you have innocent people as well, you can't uh, you can't set them free if uh, they've been executed. Why do you find that the death penalty still continues to be the law? You know, I'm as flummoxed as you are. I do not know why it continues to be the law when poll after poll shows there's decreasing support for it. There's more and more information available because of innocence work about the fallibility of the death penalty, and it is actually being imposed less and less often across the country. So I think it's just a matter of time before the U.S. justice system catches up with the rest of the advanced and civilized world and abolishes the death penalty. Um, there are a few loud voices that keep it alive. I fear that we are in a political atmosphere now that might be um, heightening those voices and that we're going to have to do a little more fighting uh, again to to move forward on this issue. But I, it's just a matter of time before it's abolished. And I, and I have to say, innocence work has contributed a lot to showing just how dangerous it is for us to have a death penalty. It's dangerous and morally and logically corrupt and flabbergasting. It does. That does seem like a very simple, you know, analysis. And, and but I do think that some people get more stuck on the horrendousness of some of the crimes and just wanting the feeling that that's the ultimate holding of accountability. I don't think anyone in their right mind. And I realize that's asking a lot. <laughs> Um, actually thinks that it's a deterrent. It's only a deterrent for the person that you kill. That person cannot kill any longer um, because they've been executed. But there, it is not at all an effective deterrent in any way. Um, it's a, And for those that care very much about the practicalities, it's an enormously expensive and cumbersome system. Um, and it would be in society's best interest not to waste resources on killing somebody, but rather on uh, fixing those societal problems that have led to so much crime. Yeah, I completely agree. We're talking about restorative justice earlier, and this is all about retribution. Is our justice system to be about retribution? And if so, this poses the more general question of how we can expect a justice system that is solely concerned with retribution to be able to have the tools needed to ensure that the people that are released become law-abiding citizens. We've failed to address the structural socioeconomic causes that lead people to commit crimes in the first place. 
with severely limited educational programs and vocational training for prisoners. And we basically regurgitate them back onto society with no assistance as to where they would be living, where they would find proper health care, and where they will find employment. It's a system that's doomed to fail. Well, I think we're demonstrating that. We have we lock up more people in this country than any other country, uh, and we're not safer here. Um, it's not fixing the problem. It's not like our crime rate has been reduced because of the greater incarceration rates. Our crime rates are reduced when education is improved. Um, so I think we're seeing we're, we're demonstrating it. We're we're having the the grand experiment fail. Uh, it's it's frustrating. <laughs> um, it is. So my final question is the benevolent dictator question. You are now uh, benevolent dictators of California. Uh, what first steps would you take in reforming the criminal justice system to avoid the wrongful conviction of innocent people? Well, I think you touched on it a minute ago when we were talking about the death penalty and our uh, approach to crime being one of retribution as opposed to fixing whatever society's problems are that are encouraging us to have whatever crime it is that we do have. So there has to be sort of a shift in approach. And again, given our current political climate, I don't see that that really happening. But we've got to move away from the notion that every time there's a problem in our society, we just lock up everybody who might uh, have tangentially been involved in, in that problem. Um, but given that this is the system that we have and we now have to work with it, I have um, a few thoughts on how we might improve working within this exact system. And one is we already talked about open file discovery. Um, make it all available. Everybody should have access to all the information that the prosecutor has and then let the defense figure out what to do with it. I think that would solve many problems having to do with prosecutorial misconduct. Um, I would get rid of snitches, and we talked about that as well. Oh, yeah. Paid informants or in incentivized witnesses, I don't think, contribute uh, in a positive way to our criminal justice system. Um, the other thing that we talked about and that I think we need to continue to do is to push for forensic science to be validated um, and encourage courts and lawyers to make sure that whatever they are um, using or relying upon as being represented at science is, in fact, a valid science. Um, I think that another thing that's in the way of our system currently and in moving forward with demonstrating wrongful convictions is the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. Uh, fondly and unfondly known as EDPA, um, which is a federal law that restricts access to federal habeas petitions and I think hamstrings, just, just hog ties judges who may look at a case where there is evidence of innocence and doesn't even allow them to reach it because of procedural problems. Um, it has created more litigation than it has solved and it has denied many righteous cases um, the opportunity to be favorably resolved. Um, I guess I would also in encourage, I don't know how to, how to do it best, but really wanting prosecutors to rethink their role 
particularly in a post-conviction context where their role is not or shouldn't be just to defend a conviction, but to actually take a step back. And in those cases where there is real concern to take a serious second look at a case and then concede an error. I know it's hard. It's hard for all human beings to do that, but they aren't just regular human beings. They're tasked with being the the stewards of our justice system. And so it is even more important that they be able to take that step back and reevaluate a case. Um, And I don't know how to encourage that. I don't know if it is to require or encourage more conviction review units within prosecutors' offices. That can't be a bad thing. So I I guess I would encourage that. Um, Getting rid of absolute prosecutorial immunity for uh, things that they have done while in office. those are some some thoughts I had. That's my, me as a benevolent dictator. I don't know if yeah. I guess that doesn't sound very benevolent if I want to get rid of prosecutorial immunity, but I don't see it serving a useful uh, useful a useful enough function to make it absolute. Uh, more qualified immunity would be better to me. So, sure. so Linda already touched on most of the things on my benevolent dictator list, but uh, one additional thing I, I would add would be requiring that law enforcement agencies statewide adopt all evidence-based practices, both for uh, eyewitness procedures and for interrogation. Sounds great. I take it over. (laughs) Not not, not only only requiring it, but actually making sure that they do it, because we actually know that even even jurisdictions that have adopted or allegedly adopted best practices or say they have don't necessarily always follow through. So we Hmm. want to make sure that there was some procedure to make sure that they're actually using best practices, not just saying I, I very much uh, admire your would be ring. Are we elected? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you could be elected and then just uh, retain <laughs> power, m- possibly better than uh, the chaotic circus that we have now. Well, thank you very much for coming on Gravity today and discussing these pertinent issues and providing your valuable insight and discussing your very commendable work. It's our pleasure. Yeah. It was, thank you for it having us. Great. Thank you. hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.